Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for the the gift of getting to be a community seeking you, drawn together by your grace. Um, We're all in, we're not all in the same place. Some of us come in to this today um, having sung these songs for years, we don't have to even look at the slides. The prayers are just there, the words are known. For some of us, this is newer, or maybe brand new. Uh, for some of us, we come today with a world of gratitude and hunger. For others of us, we come today with questions and ache. And probably many of us reflect a whole range of that. And we just bow to you. And we ask that by your grace, you would take this moment as we turn to your word and you would speak to us. That's what you do. You would take your inspired scripture and you would make it the means today again of your revelation, your word of grace to us today. Open us up to you and to one another in all this. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today we are starting a new series. Original Grace. A study in Genesis 1 to 11 is the first 11 chapters of the Bible. In truth, I have wanted to take us into Genesis 1 to 11 for a long while. Uh Uh-oh, a few people have already yawned, and I just, I'm like two sentences in. What's going on? Do we need to stand? Breathe. Okay, good. Sorry. Wow. (laughs) I've wanted to take us into these texts because although all scripture is God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in God's ways and God's truth, there are some texts that seem to stand above all the others and lay a foundation for so much else. And Genesis 1 to 11 is some of that for us. It's not just the prologue to Genesis. It is, in fact, the prologue to the whole of the Bible. And we need to know this. And not just that, but in a very real sense, it is the prologue to all of life as we know it. In all of its beauty and all of its brokenness. That is the claim of Scripture. Someone goes so far to say that Genesis 1 to 11 is the first half of the Bible. Most of us wouldn't think that, right? We tend to think that's the Old Testament. But in truth, uh, as Daryl Johnson, one of my professors in grad school, explains, the rest of the Bible only makes sense in the light of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. These 11 chapters set the stage for the story of the world. They name the core characters. They reveal the vision, God's vision for life, what it's about, how it's supposed to work, what causes it to flourish. And they explain why things often don't flourish, why our world is as it is, with all of its beauty and brokenness. And the rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 12, the story of Abraham, all the way to Revelation 22, the last book of the Bible, is really the story of how God has and is seeking to rescue and restore us and all of creation for the life, to the life for which we were created. 
In a very real sense, Genesis 1 to 11 is the essential context in which we are able to make sense of not just the rest of the Bible, but even, or maybe especially, our own lives, our own world. Something I've been mulling on this last while, this essential context, particularly because we need to read Genesis 1 to 11 in context, right? Uh, In truth, this is why teaching Genesis is so daunting, because it has often been misread, misinterpreted, misapplied, sometimes intentionally to fuel or boy up an argument or an agenda, but often because of a lack of context, a lack of attentiveness to the context in which Genesis was originally inspired and brought to form. So for years now, I probably, like many, have been studying Genesis as best I can, for decades even, I would say, seeking to learn from others who understand the world in which it emerged. And and again recently, and I will do my best. I will say right now, I will not do it perfectly. Uh, There's so much more that could be said, and there's only so much I will say, and there's only so much I know, but I will do my best to help us make sense of Genesis in its context. But what hit me a few weeks ago, as I drove one morning to pray at Ross Bay, if you ever see me at Ross Bay, I'm probably out for a prayer walk, or finding more people swimming on really cold days and marveling at their vigor. Um, But anyway, sorry, side note. Um, A couple weeks back, driving to Ross Bay to pray for you, to pray for us, to pray for our study in Genesis. The simple thought distilled in my mind that the goal of Genesis 1 to 11 is that we would understand our lives in context, that we would understand both the beauty and brokenness of our world and of our humanity, that we would understand who God is and who we are, what it means to be human, why we're here, what we were made for, and what Jesus has to do with all of this. And this is my hope and prayer as we enter into this study and live in it this fall, that we would listen to Genesis well and make sense of it together in its context, but in and through this, that we would come to understand our own lives and our world in the essential context of Genesis 1 to 11 which could feel daunting. Uh, Maybe some of us feel that whenever we turn to the Old Testament, we think, oh, it's gonna be heavy. Old Testament is so complicated. Can we just be in the Gospels, you know, more good news sort of stuff? But that's the discovery that's been for me over the years. As I've studied Genesis in context, that contrary to what many people believe, including many Christians, the Gospel doesn't begin with Jesus or the New Testament. Jesus has not come to rescue us from an Old Testament God that is mean, cruel, vindictive, unkind, untrustworthy, unlikable. Now, as we will discover at every turn in this study in Genesis, Jesus is the revelation of a God who has always been good news. And I hope we feel that again and again, discover that and feel that again and again in this study. John 1 verse 1 declares that Jesus was the word in the beginning, which means that he is the revelation of the God who has always been good news, the God who was good news in the beginning. Hence the title for our study, Original Grace. You could call it OG as well if you want. 
And we encounter this grace right on the first page of the Bible, first chapter, Genesis 1. So if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, turn it with me to Genesis chapter 1. And if you're with us and you don't own a Bible, uh, there are a stack in the bookshelf just outside to the left of the doors, and you're welcome to take one and keep it. Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to pause this again to pray uh, just before we dig specifically into the text, and now we know what we're going into, right? So worthy of prayer. Lord God, I've just made a claim that your word makes a claim, that it tells us our story. That these opening chapters of Genesis are the essential context of making sense of our world. And if that is so, oh Lord God, would you awaken us to your revelation so that we would know ourselves and we would know one another and we would know you as you are and as you want us to know you. As we open up a an ancient text, famously read and misunderstood. We ask that you would speak to us. Open us up to receive your revelation, what you intend for us. For your glory, for the good of the world, and for our joy in you. Amen. Now, before we go anywhere in this text, I want to acknowledge right at the outset that Genesis is not, is, is, is fundamentally a theological work. Can we agree to that? Genesis is, this is the first book of the Bible. Genesis is fundamentally a theological work, not a science textbook. And I know that some might be disappointed that I'm not going to go there, uh, who want or expect me to expound on what Genesis 1 could say about the definitive age of the earth or how it all happened. But to do so, I am convinced, is to disregard the very real and pressing questions and concerns for which God inspired Genesis 1 in the first place. Questions and concerns that have always been and still are more pressing than the age of the earth or how it happened. Simply put, Genesis 1 is about the creator more than it is the creation, though it has huge implications for how we make sense of the creation and ourselves. At the, but at the most basic level, it was written not to satisfy our curiosity about to know how, pardon me, but our need to know who. Our need to know who made the world and us. And why and for what purpose and what has happened that has brought the world to its present state, surging with earthquakes and tsunamis, beauty and brokenness. As John Dixon, an Anglican minister and ancient history professor, explains, the central point of Genesis 1 is not the pressing scientific questions of modern men and women, but the more pressing theological and philosophical questions that have haunted humanity for all history. Similarly, Bruce Waltke trusted authority on the Old Testament wrote, the purposes of Genesis and science are different. Genesis is prescriptive, answering the questions of who and why and what ought to be, whereas the purpose of science is descriptive, answering the questions of what and how. The narrator of the creation account is not particularly concerned with the questions a scientist asks, 
rather wants to provide answers to the questions that science cannot answer. Who has created this world and for what purpose? These are the questions that God invites us to consider as we come again, or maybe for the first time, to this monumental text, Genesis 1, the ancient biblical song of creation. A song that in its original context would have been heard and received as shocking, startling, unexpected, sheer grace. Incredible good news. Why? Because this was not the only song of creation being sung in its day. This is not the only song of creation the ancient Israelites heard. Just as this is not the only song of creation that we hear today, is it? So before we dive into this other ancient song that the Israelites were continually confronted by, immersed in, I want us to pause for a second and just consider the songs of creation that we hear and are shaped by, which is really the concern, right? Our creation stories shape us. Our origin stories tell us who we are and why we are, right? They shape our perception of ourselves and and others and what life is about and how it's supposed to work. They shape our sense of what is good and what is valuable and what is worth protecting and what is dispensable, what is evil, what should be broken free from. For years now in the enlightened West, and this is no no new news, we've, we've heard a secular song of creation that essentially says you and I are just an assemblage of atoms a complex collection of chemicals that surprisingly exists, but just as easily could not have existed. We are a random blip on a screen that really has no meaning and significance, which clearly isn't just a story people read and hear. That's a story that forms people, right? Maybe some of us. And increasingly, the song we hear is that there is no song. There is no song, there is no story. Nothing is holding history or anything together except you. You are your own songwriter. You are your own singer. That's your freedom. That's your glory that each of us gets to and has to write our own story. And hopefully it ends up being a good story. But who's to judge? It's your story. I'll write mine. Hopefully no one gets hurt in the process. Think about how that story shapes people. Imagine what it's like to grow up with no understanding of the story in which you are alive or being told there is no story. Imagine what it's like to, be, to grow up having been told that there is no story, that life has no meaning, no value, no significance in the big picture because there is no big picture and that the world and you are just something that happened and you just as easily could not have happened and it makes no difference. That's a story that shapes a person, Right? Or imagine what it would be like, and I apologize, I am sorry if this connects with anyone's personal story, but imagine what it's like to grow up having been told that your parents despised each other and that you are somehow the consequence of their fractured relationship, that you are somehow an expression of their brokenness, that you were never wanted, still aren't, never valued for who you are, just another hand to help make things happen. Someone who exists solely to do the chores that others don't want to do. That isn't just a contemporary experience, that is an ancient story that shapes how people perceive themselves in the world. 
Imagine what it would be like to grow up believing, being told that God or the gods are out to get you. That he or she or they are powerful and merciless, fickle, changing their minds endlessly, self-centered, vengeful, and you better do all you can to stay in their good books or your life will be a living hell. And by the way, they're not gonna tell you how to stay in their good books. Imagine how that impacts someone's understanding of the world and themselves. Sadly, there are a lot of people in our world today, as there have been through history, who have lived in and under these kinds of creation stories. In a sense, all of our lives are shaped by a particular song of creation or a mix of them passed down by our families, by our teachers, by our songs, by our histories, by YouTubers. And sadly, many of them are lies that crush us. All that is to say, Genesis 1 is not the only song of creation. And just as we find ourselves immersed in a world singing many different songs of creation, the ancient Israelites to whom Genesis 1 was first addressed found themselves immersed in a world singing a radically different song of creation. And it's against the backdrop of this other song of creation or creation story that we need to hear Genesis 1. Because it's against this backdrop that the beauty and the grace and the goodness of Genesis 1 breaks through to the surface because Genesis 1 seems to have been written in explicit refutation of this other story. And so to make sense of this other story, we need to take a step back out of our modern, postmodern, scientific world and into the world in which Genesis 1 took its final form, into the world of the Israelites in exile in Babylon in the 6th century BC. Although much of the of what fills the Old Testament was passed down for centuries through oral traditions and written histories. Most of it, including the book of Genesis, is thought to have come into its final form during the time of Israel's captivity in Babylon between 586 and 537 BC. Alive in a world, uh, in a world alive with a song of creation known as the Babylonian song of creation, known commonly as the Enuma Elish. Uh, Enuma Elish is Sumerian for the first three words of this creation story, went on high, Enuma Elish. It's dated to the days of Hammurabi, around 1700 BC. And it wasn't just this little known bedtime story or something that once in a while a preacher would get up and share and no one else had really heard of. It wasn't some elitist conversation topic that only academics explored. Babylonian life was shaped by this story. The year the new year, every year, began with an 11-day celebration of this story, where this story, the Enuma Elish, was recounted and regaled, celebrated for all the ways in which it shaped their life. Yesterday was the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And that day is getting us talking. That day is getting us listening. That day is helping us beyond that day. Imagine 11 days of a nation turning toward giving their ear to one story. A story that begins with two divine beings, a male god named Apsu, god of fresh water and fertility. I'm going to take you into this story for a few minutes, so hopefully this will help. A male god named Apsu, god of fresh water and fertility, and a female companion, Tiamat, goddess of chaos 
thought to reside in the seas. Notice this song begins with a watery chaos. Fresh water, a God that resides in the seas. Think of Genesis 1. This is common in the ancient Near Eastern world. The waters were thought to be the place where chaos dwelled, and we hear it right here. And these two produce a number of little gods, offspring, god-ets, we'll say. Anshar and Kishar, who give birth to Anu, who give birth to Ea, and so on. You don't need to remember all this, but just track with me. And these, eventually these little offspring, the littles, we'll call them, get so rambunctious that Apsu, the male god of fresh water and fertility, can't take it any longer and decides to do away with them. He can't get any peace and quiet day or night. That's literally what this ancient story says. The kids are too loud. And so Apsu decides to slaughter his grandchildren babies. That's the story of the Babylonians. But before Apsu can take action, one of the grandbabies, Ea, discovers Apsu's plan and assassinates him. So you can already see that the gods of Babylon are fickle. They are reactive. They are selfish. They are merciless, intending to kill their own offspring because they are too loud. No one would read these stories and say, God is good. No one would read these stories and say, well, I don't know much, but I know God is love. No one would say that. This was not something the Babylonians believed about the gods. The story then shifts to a god named Marduk, who really becomes the main character in the story from here on out. The return of events, Marduk becomes the chief god, not by right, but by might. He has won the most victories. Like Apsu, who was the god of fresh water, Mar- Marduk was the god of springs, symbolized by both water and by light, the light of the sun, the great light, and lightning, lightning in the storm and the rain. Following the murder of Apsu Tiamat, his widow decides to seek revenge by creating a mob of horrible monsters whose bodies are filled with poison. Sorry, I should have given a warning before this. Whose bodies are filled with poison instead of blood, and he intends that they will avenge the death of Apsu. So she takes Kingu, another god, as her new husband and commissions him to lead the avenging forces against the little gods. But the little gods hear of Tiamat's intentions and select Marduk to fight against them. And so Marduk, the great god, symbolized by the great light, and Tiamat, the goddess of chaos, residing in the sea, face each other in battle. This is an ancient depiction of this from ancient Sumeria. Marduk captures her, Tiamat, in a net. And when Tiamat opens her mouth to devour Marduk, Marduk causes the four winds to blow into her body and her body distends like an ancient balloon. Marduk shoots an arrow into her, tearing her belly apart, piercing her heart. And having killed her, Marduk then cuts her body in two, from which he makes the heavens and the earth. Half he uses to separate the waters above from the waters below. And from the other half, he makes the stars and the constellations. And having done this, Marduk then assigns gods to dwell in each of these, the stars and the constellations, to govern over life on earth. After all this, Marduk creates humans because the gods are lazy. 
and they don't want to work. So why don't we create a species that can do the work for us? So Marduk kills his rival, Kingu, and out of his blood, Marduk creates humanity to serve the gods in two ways, to relieve the gods of work and to make sure they are fed because they don't need to do such domestic matters. That is a short sketch of the ancient song of creation that the Babylonians sung and lived out. Which means that this is the song that rung in the ears of the Israelites as they served their time working day in and day out in Babylon in exile. The heavens and the earth were created as a result of the turmoil between the gods. The forces of nature, along with all that we see, the sun, the moon, the stars, are all gods, selfish, unpredictable, vengeful gods, in whose hands the fate of all is determined, and consequently who must be appeased and pleased endlessly, though no one knows how, because they don't reveal their will, and even if they did, they'd change their minds according to their moods. And lastly, humanity is created as a begrudging afterthought as a result of the selfish whims and vengeful actions of the gods. And humanity's sole purpose is to serve the gods, to relieve them of work that they do not want to do. Can you imagine how that shapes your understanding of reality and how life works. I'm struggling to get pregnant. Better go find the God of fertility and do whatever I think could maybe work this time so that God will bless me and help me and my spouse bear a child. The crops aren't working. I better find the God who brings the rain and the God that brings the sun and the God that holds back the winds. Hopefully, maybe I could do something or maybe I can't because they're against me already. It's not working. Imagine how your life is shaped by that song of creation. At the most basic level, the Babylonian song of creation describes a hostile world, a hostile cosmos, filled with fear and anxiety and oppressive systems and structures because the gods are not good. They are hostile, they are volatile, they are selfish, and the world is not a good place. None of it is. And we see this in many stories in the world. Many ancient songs of creation that say the world is not good. We need to break free from it. According to all the historical evidence, it's in, it's in this place, a world shaped by this story in this historic, geopolitical, ideological place that the God of the Bible spoke Genesis into its final form to the Israelites living as slaves, servants, working in Babylon in exile. It's here, into this experience of the world of life, that God inspires into final form the biblical song of creation, a song bursting with good news, especially if we know the other song being sung. So here now, Genesis 1. I'm not gonna read the entirety of it, but we'll enter into some of it. Read it with me if you want. Well, not out loud, that would get awkward. Different translations. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. To hear the good news already calling out right there. In the Babylonian song, in the Babylonian world, the waters are the place where the forces of chaos dwell and reign, Tiamat and Apsu. But according to Genesis 1, in the beginning, someone was over the waters. Someone good, as we will soon discover. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. We could talk at length about the literary structure of this poem, this ancient poem. But beyond that, do you hear in the light of this other song, the gospel singing out. In the Babylonian song, the world was created out of the conflict of the gods almost as a trophy of a vengeful war. Marduk, the violent one, was the great light and nothing was good. But here, according to Genesis 1, the world is created by the conscious will, the creative speech, the word of one God. And God said, and it was. And the light is not another God to be feared, but the good gift of a good God for the people that he has made and the world that he has made that he loves, that he calls good. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so, God called the expanse sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered at one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so, and God called the dry ground land and the gathered water sea and God saw that it was good. And on and on it goes with every verse, every lyric of this song announcing to Israel and to us down through the centuries the liberating news that the stars have no power. The sun and the moon have no power. The sky above, the waters below, the wind, they all have functions in the universe for the purpose of the flourishing of the world that God has made. According to God's design, But other than that, they are powerless. They are not divine. They are just like everything else in creation, created by God and utterly subject for him. There is one God who's created all and is over all. Nothing God made is God. Therefore, nothing in all of creation is to be feared as God. Honored, yes. Sacred, yes. But not divine, not to be feared. There is one God and he is good. And all that he has made, he calls good. In contrast to the Babylonian song, we are not pawns in the hands of selfish, distant, merciless gods. Our lives are not under the influences of the forces of nature. In contrast to the creation song that is sung today, we are not lost and alone in a meaningless and vacuous, empty universe. Our lives are held in the hands of a living God who knows us and cares for us, who delights in us and seeks to bless us Some of us assume all the time, we think everyone in the world should always think, has always thought God is good, God is love, God blesses. That is not what the vast majority of the world today and down through history has believed. Depends on what story you're reading. The idea that God, God, who does not need us, would create us and choose to bless us. 
Here, Genesis 1, 26 and following, then God said, let us make humanity in our image. In the image, in our likeness, let us let them rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over all the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. We'll come back to this next time. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And finally, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Two weeks from now, we will come back to explore the explosive revolution of this idea that the Bible teaches that all humanity is made in the image of God. All humanity but for now, let us simply marvel at the fact that in contrast to what other ancient and modern songs of creation say, we did not come into being simply as a result of random processes of ever-increasing complexity, nor were we born out of the conflict of the gods. Now, according to the grace of Genesis 1, you and I and all of humanity, in fact, all of creation, were created as the direct result of the conscious will and creative speech, the very word of God. In contrast to the song of the Babylonians, we were not created as a begrudging afterthought of the gods merely to be slaves to serve the every whim of selfish and lazy gods. No, we were created at the climax, as the climax of God's creative work with great joy and intentionality. That we might experience the joy of knowing our God and being alive with him, caring with him for all of the good creation that he has made. And as a sign of this grace, this good and hardworking God gives humanity a Sabbath, a day. Imagine being a slave, being in exile in Babylon, working day in and day out under a story that says that all of humanity have been made to serve the needs of the gods. And into this place, they hear a story that says, after God celebrates the creation of humanity, he gives them the gift of a Sabbath, a day that announces every seven days, structured into every seven days, an announcement of a gospel of a God who provides for us, who doesn't need us to bring him his food, but who gives us ours. All that to say, in the Genesis song of creation, we are invited to discover that at the center of the universe is a God who has always been good news. In the beginning, friends, in the beginning there was grace. A God who was and still is good news for all. And I feel this particularly as I think of God speaking this to his people in exile, in the crushing experience of life in Babylon, and hearing its song. It helps me to see that Genesis 1 isn't just theological truth, though it is. It isn't just a revelation of reality, though it is, but it is actually also pastoral. It is a word of grace and love, speaking hope and comfort to us in hard places when things are not the way we expected them to be. When the world feels hostile all around us and we encounter the not good of so many things 
Genesis 1 invites us to put our trust in and find hope in the God of creation, the God who is the gospel, a God so good, so devoted to the world that he has made that this God would ultimately take on flesh, enter into the human story in Jesus and lay down his life as a sacrifice for the sin and rebellion of the world on the cross for the sake of the world that God made and loves. Scour the world. Scour the annals of history, the religions of the world, the songs of creation. You will not find a creation story as good as this. A gospel that is already evident in Genesis 1. This is a story we all need to hear. To learn and to live in and out. As a starting point, not just of the Bible, but of our lives, the story of you, the story of me. Obviously, in a few weeks, we're going to get to the story of the fall, Genesis 3, where sin enters the story and its impact on everything. Today is not the whole story, but I think it's important for us to understand that our story and the story of the world doesn't begin with the fall, doesn't begin with sin, doesn't begin with what is broken, what is rebellious. No, our story, the story of the world begins with good news, with grace. The gospel begins with grace, with the grace of God who is and always has been good news, who created us in his goodness, who made the world and called it good, who delights in all that he has made and is who is committed to seeking the good of the world. And it all begins with a God who speaks. So the question for us is, will we listen? Or maybe who are we listening to? Who have you listened to? Who have you allowed to tell you your story and the story of the world? Jesus is the word, right? That's the New Testament's celebration. It's such a gift. The story of Genesis is spoken to us, telling us the story of God's creation, and then, in no surprise, God continues to come and speak. And Jesus is that living word. And Jesus comes to speak and teach us our story. I can't help but think, and I'll close with this, of Jesus' famous words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Many of us know it. We hear it all the time. But again, it's so relevant here. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Weary and burdened, why? Because we're wearing the wrong yoke, he says. Take my yoke upon you. What is an ancient yoke of a rabbi? It's a way of seeing the world. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, because you are seeing the world in a way that is not true, that is beating you down, tearing you away from what God made you for. Whether it's a song of Babylon or some other song, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, as we enter into Genesis, Jesus, the word of God, says to us, come, let me tell you your story.
Come and listen. Let me tell you your story that you might live, that all might live. Let's pray. and yet it is a natural expression of your character. If you are the good God who loves all that you've made, it only makes sense in grace that you would speak this revelation to us in history and in scripture and keep it by your Holy Spirit alive in our world that we might be pulled into the truth and reality of who you are. And that the half-truths and the lies that oppress many would be cast off, that oppress all of us would be cast off. So we bow to you, Jesus. I ask that you would open us up to receive your revelation, to understand our world as you have made it, understand you as you reveal yourself to us that we might also know ourselves in you thank you for your grace the gift of revelation today we bless you amen